Well, as I sometimes say to people that I see walking in my neighborhood, howdy. Yeah, a few of you. Howdy. Uh, good morning. Good to see you. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our adult discipleship director. Good to be with you uh, in the room today and glad you're joining us online wherever you are. Welcome to Mount Horeb and uh, what a special day to be together. I'm looking forward to it. In 2020, my wife and I and family, we went up to see her family in northern Michigan. We go to Traverse City once a year. It's beautiful in the summer. You really can't beat it. And so we were up there and it was just a few months you know, after COVID, it kind of closed everything down. And we were hoping that some places might still be open. We go downtown, we're kind of walking around, looks like a ghost town. And some places are, you can get some pizza and some places weren't. And we came across this shop and uh, we looked in the storefront of this shop and it was a frozen yogurt store. It was completely closed down. And we looked inside and the lights were off and there were cobwebs starting to form. And I don't know, it'd been months since somebody had been inside of this thing. And the, the chairs were taken, they were put on top of the tables and it's just completely dark. And on the front of the window, there was this little sign and it said something like this. Thank you so much for the opportunity to serve our community for 16 years. We are so sad that we've had to close our doors. And it just broke my heart. And maybe you saw a lot of things like this during the pandemic, but you, you looked at things that were closed and you thought to yourself, that's supposed to be open. Like it's supposed to be teeming with life. We look at things and our hearts long to see Life. We long to see life. We long to see city centers and town squares filled with people and families and commerce and uh, buzzing. And we long to look at pizza places and frozen yogurt stores and see people together enjoying life and laughing. We long to see these things, full gardens and tall cornfields. We long to see life. We were made to look for it. We were made to ache for it but we also long to experience it in our own heart. What we long for externally is often a reflection of what we long for internally. We long to experience a heart that is fully alive, a heart that is overflowing, an open heart, a generous heart. We're in our series, Generosity, A Life Overflowing, and Pastor Jeff kicked us off, and he did a great job talking about uh, open hands and how we give and how we can use our resources to leverage kingdom interests, but also it's not primarily about what God wants from us, but what God wants for us. And then Pastor Trevor last week talked about having an open table. Do we have room in our relational table for people who aren't like us, for people who don't look like us, act like us, think like us, talk like us, and how can we be generous there? And today I would like to talk to you about an open heart about a generous heart, and why in the world would we want one of those? Why would we go to battle to have a generous heart, and what does it look like? So our primary passage is Luke 6, 33 through 38. We will be there uh, primarily and predominantly. I will dance around a little bit in this passage, but we'll mainly be there. Uh, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of the scripture? And it goes like this. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. 
Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I really want to hone in the main concept of today on the last several verses. Uh, Be merciful. And then four commands, two negative, two positive. Do not judge, do not condemn, forgive, and then give. Do not judge, do not condemn, forgive, and then give. This is the posture of a generous heart. And in short, you could kind of say the summary of Jesus' teaching is this. If you're harsh and nasty with other people, don't be surprised when people are harsh and nasty with you. If you're kind and you're gracious with other people, don't be surprised when people are kind and gracious with you. Uh, The great theologian Justin Timberlake wrote a song about this at one point in time. Uh, you, You may be familiar with it. What goes around comes around, right? Great song. It's a real... Uh, hand snapper, toe tapper, what is it? I don't know, one of those things. But I, I have to say up front too, how what Jesus is talking about is a little bit more than what we would call karma and what we would know as the prosperity gospel, a little bit more than that, because it's not simply a prosperity gospel where we're thinking, I can give something so that I can get in return. I can give something and then God will take care of my material needs and comfort and basically that's how I kind of amass wealth and success. If you look closely at the passage, this is more about the generosity of our heart. Are we stingy with it or do we give it freely? But even if you applied it to our money and our resources, Jesus says the reason we give is not to get, it's to, we, we give freely so that we might see others experience life change. That's what we, that's the reward so that we might see others come to know the God that we know. Um, And it's more than karma because karma is often an impersonal thing as a one-to-one, like I do good, good things happen, I do bad, bad things happen, but if you take that and run with it, okay, well, I did bad or something bad happened to me, did I do bad? Or something good happened to me, I must be doing good. And if we look at the wisdom of the whole scripture, the wisdom of the whole uh, Bible, we find this, that often, very often, Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people, right? Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people, and that is a freeing source of wisdom in the Scripture. So it's more than that, and yet there's something very true here, a principle woven into the fabric of the universe, that how we treat others, we will be treated like. So I would like to talk about having a generous heart. I just have four points today. Uh, and I want to talk about what a generous heart looks like and what it does, two and two in no particular order. Here we go. In a generous heart, compassion and condemnation cannot coexist. In a generous heart, compassion and condemnation cannot coexist. Listen to Jesus. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Often a very quoted passage, do not judge, do not be judged, do not condemn, do not be condemned, and then forgive. So two negative commands and then a, and then a positive. And, and often when we judge, what we are doing is we are evaluating someone, and then after we evaluate this person and their behavior, we esteem them less. 
That's what being judgmental is. We've evaluated someone or a situation and we esteem them less. To condemn someone is to esteem them completely beyond hope of receiving the transformative grace of God. Oh, they're just too far gone. Oh, there's no way God could save them. There's no way that that person could change. You see, and we condemn them outside of the hope and possibility of having a changed life. And say, don't judge and you won't be judged. Don't condemn and you won't be condemned. And it's not that we don't evaluate people, right? We all do this. And we don't want to have rose-colored glasses on and just sweep everything under the rug. We don't, it's, it's not, this is not only positive thinking, like, oh, I don't see any negative. I only see positive. This is not what that's saying. It's saying after we have evaluated, we don't esteem them less but maybe we even esteem them more. In fact, Rabbi Hillel says, once you've judged someone, incline the balance in their favor. And Jesus, and we read this in English, and it says, do not, do not. So we think there's this force of, I need to stop doing this, but in reality, the Greek force of the verb is this. Stop judging. Stop condemning. There's an assumption about the human heart from Jesus' teaching that because of our fallen and broken heart, he knew we would need to feel better than others. He knew we would need to feel bigger than others. He knew we would need to feel more superior to others. And so we need that, and so we start to judge others, and we start to put others down, and we start to lift ourselves up. And Jesus is not just saying, hey, don't start that. He's saying, you're already doing it somewhere. You just probably need to realize where you're doing it, and let's put a stop to that. So when we evaluate someone, we don't esteem them as less than, and we certainly don't esteem them as less than ourselves. My judgmental spirit can come out in being overly critical. I can be overly critical. I can assess a situation and see what went wrong with it and then be like, well, obviously, here's how you, know, you guys screwed it up. My family has given me great feedback on this. You know, they've helped me see it. I really appreciate them. And uh, I, I can, you know, we got to fix this and we got to do better at this. And well, you should have done that and all sorts of stuff. And uh, they help me see that this is really from a place of judgment because that those criticisms can crush people. And I've been working on this and I've got this little mantra going on. It's from Pope John the 23rd. I know you all have read Pope John the 23rd, just fantastic. Uh, but he's got this little mantra that I've adopted and I'm trying to just allow God to ingest it into my heart and in my mind. And it goes like this, see everything. Overlook much, correct little. See everything. Overlook much, correct little. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in a Nazi prison camp, he wrote uh, letters and papers that was compiled into a book. And in that book, he says this. Whoever despises another human being will never be able to make anything of him. Nothing of what we despise in another is itself foreign to us. He's saying we can't hold out hope for someone's transformation if we despise that person. We can't have compassion on someone if we condemn them. We can't serve them if we hate them. But he's also giving us a little secret into the psychology of the human heart. He says this, the thing that you so easily and so readily spot as a flaw in someone else is itself present in you. That's how we're so quick to see it. That's why we're so quick to see it, because we do the same thing. It may be in a different way, but we're doing the same thing. 
And he says, that's not foreign to us. We have to remove the blockage of the heart so that the Father's heart can flow through us. There's a few reasons we judge as human beings. We judge because we're insecure. We don't have a strong identity maybe. Maybe we're not feeling very grounded, we're insecure. We don't really know who we are. And so in order to not feel insecure, we go ahead and judge others or put them down. Maybe we haven't grieved well. We've lost something. And everyone who lost something is tempted into vengeance. And so we've got this pain and we haven't walked well in the grief and so we wanna take that vengeance out on someone or something, on God sometimes. But we also judge because we're envious. We look around at somebody and we're just like, man, they, what they have, their talent, their resource, their success, whatever it is, I just don't have it and we're just jealous of it. And so we put them down because we actually feel less than them. And Jesus says, this type of heart is not a generous heart, it's a blocked heart. The arteries are clogged and it needs to be unclogged. He says, forgiveness is the key. Forgiveness is the key to unlock a blocked heart. The Greek here for forgiveness is apoluo. Everybody say apoluo. Very good. Apoluo here specifically means to release, to release. There's another Greek word that's more predominantly used for forgiveness. It's aphiemi. Everybody say aphiemi. Greek scholars. Good job. Why does Jesus not use aphiemi and he uses apoluo here? And I think there's more force in this word because it means this, to release, to let go, to set free. Actually, there's other places in the New Testament where it is also translated to divorce. Some of us need to break up with our bitterness. We've married that thing and we feel like it gives us power and it makes us feel secure and we need to let it go. Lewis Smead's great New Testament theologian said this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. Forgiveness is a beautiful concept. It's great to talk about until you have to do it. You're like, oh yeah, didn't you see this story? Like they were wrong so much and then the guy just forgave him. That's so beautiful. And then we get wrong and we're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. It's not that pretty anymore. Here's why. Because if you're gonna forgive someone, you pay twice. The forgiving person pays twice, the transgressor doesn't pay at all. You pay twice because you pay when you were sinned against, you pay when you were hurt in the wound, and then you pay again by letting them go. All the while, they didn't pay at all. And if you're anything like me, this is an impossible task were it not for grace, were it not for the power of the Holy Spirit, were it not to use, in one sense, God's heavenly bank account in order to pay the price of forgiveness. A generous heart does not contain both compassion and condemnation. It sets people free. It lets them go. It takes those self-preserving barriers, which we think we're locking the other person in, but we're really locking ourselves in and keeping others out. In a generous heart, compassion and condemnation cannot coexist. Secondly, a generous heart unlocks generosity in others. 
Generosity begets generosity, and a generous heart unlocks the heart of other people. It says this in Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And from what we know now from uh, neuroscientists, they tell us that when we're with in the presence of other people, even if we're not using verbal communication, our brains are talking. Our brains are sending signals back and forth to each other. You could say that our hearts are speaking to one another. There is communication going on. We're reading vibes may be a contemporary way to put it, right? And we know that generous, a generous heart actually unlocks the generosity of others. This is what Jesus is saying. He's using an illustration. He's saying the measure you use will be measured to you. He's using the illustration of harvest time. It's fall time, it's harvest time, we can relate. So just imagine I have a bushel up here and there's some grain or some corn. He says, it's like this. If you're gonna buy a bushel of grain, and uh, I know we've all done that recently. You're gonna buy a bushel of grain. You're gonna say, all right, I want the most for my money. So we're gonna put this grain in here and then the person's gonna swirl it around and it's gonna settle down. Then they're gonna pack it down. They're gonna put more grain in there. They're gonna swirl it around. It's gonna settle down. They're gonna pack it down. Then they're gonna fill it up to the top to where it starts to form a cone. They might, in, the, in this day and age, they would poke a hole in the side of that cone. They would put more grain in it. So that what? So that you know you're getting the most possible grain for what you're paying for. And then when you picked it up, it was so full that some of it might fall over the side and spill over the edges into what Jesus says is your lap. Now lap refers to the, they would wear robes and a belt. The part of the robe that would hang over the belt, you could create a little bit of a pocket with it. And he's saying it overflowed so much that it went right into this little pocket. It's kind of like in a few weeks, like Halloween, those little kids be running around the neighborhoods with those pumpkins, right? But those pumpkins are gonna be filled up really quick, but guess what? They got a t-shirt on or something, and they're gonna take that, they're gonna take it and open up their pocket. Like, just put it right here. I got plenty of room. They're gonna come home with that t-shirt folded up. They have plenty of candy here, and there's got some in their pumpkin. This is the image that Jesus is saying. He said, generosity unlocks generosity to such a measure you can't even, you can't even contain it. One act of true generosity unlocks generosity. Now, I, by you know, definition, my, my wife is just an incredibly generous person, way more generous than I am. I'm still growing in generosity. We all got room to grow. She's very generous. Um, and in 2015, we kind of had a dream come true. Uh, we got invited to go watch the Packers play the Saint, then the St. Louis Rams at Lambeau Field in Wisconsin. A friend of mine was uh, the chaplain for the Rams and he was like, hey, if you can get yourself up there and get a hotel or whatever and I'll have you do the Rams chapel and then I will get you two tickets. You and Carl, I know how much she loves the Packers so by default our whole family loves the Packers and so I'll get you guys up there. You guys can go to the game and we were like, that's incredible. That's so incredible. So uh, we didn't budget for it. We were a little bit tight then at the time, so what we decided to do was like, hey, we got enough gas money that we can get up there. Um, to save money, why don't we just take the seats out of the minivan and we'll put like a mattress in the back of the minivan, like minivan camping, anyone, ever, ever? No, okay, two of you, you're brave. Thanks for raising your hand, you made me feel better. I'm not as insecure now. <laughs> minivan camping, we're like, yeah, hey, that's a great idea. We didn't have enough gas money to get home, so despite what Dave Ramsey said, like we took our credit card, right? Like, well, you bring the credit card because you gotta get home. So we get up there, get up to Lambo. 
and we have the first night there that's free, and we're touring the stadium, we're touring the uh, atrium. It's a, an incredible place, Packers Hall of Fame. We're loving life. So we're starting to walk out, and we're gonna get in our tent and drive our tent to the campsite, and we're gonna stay there for the evening. And just as we're about at the van, I hear this voice. And it's like, hey, hey, you guys. And I was like, don't turn around, don't engage. Here's a person who's had maybe a little bit too much of Wisconsin's finest, and just get in the car, just act like you didn't hear the person, and all of a sudden, my wife turns around and is like, hey, and I shot her a look like, what are you doing? And I hear out of this man's voice, he's like, hey, could you guys give me a ride? And simultaneously, I'm pretty sure I said no, and my wife said yes. And I keep that look going at her, and I'm like, we're going to talk about this later. Later, we're going to talk about this. She's a more generous person. She's ready to give, relationally. She's ready to give. And sure enough, I'm like, okay, well, she already said yes. Now I feel awkward being really stingy out loud. So fine, you can get in, the, get in our tent, and we'll take you to wherever you need to go. And so she's like, you can sit in the front, and I'll sit in the back. And I'm like, oh, okay. So she, she lets this gentleman sit in the front and she sits on the back and she's sitting on the back in the mattress, right? On, on top of the mattress. He gets in and he turns around and looks. He looks over at me and goes, you guys homeless or something? <laughs> and I'm like, no, we're on a budget, all right? We're on a budget. So I'm thinking like, where is this guy going? Is it like, you know, an hour away, 30 minutes away? He goes, look straight ahead. He goes, you see that hotel right over there? And I was like, the one that's like half a mile that way? He's like, yeah, yeah, that one, it's right there. And I was thinking, he could walk to this hotel. Like it's literally in walking distance, not even a half of a mile. I'm like, yeah, I see it. He's like, yeah, that's where I'm staying. Could you just take me over there? And I'm like, sure, I've started to feel very generous. Sure, absolutely, we can take you right over to this hotel. So we drive over there, a little bit of small talk, a little small talk, we get up to the hotel and he says this. He looks over at me, he says, what do you guys need? And I'm like, I, I don't understand the question. And he says, no, like, what do you need? And I look at him, and I'm not sure what he's asking. I'm a little concerned about what he's asking, but I just say to him, I, I don't know what you mean. And he said, well, do you need like gas money or something? You have gas money to get back home? And I'm like, I'm really uncomfortable with the question right now and where the conversation's going. And he's like, how much do you need? And I'm like, I can't say. He pulls out a wad of hundreds. One, two, three, four. He says, 400 do it. And I said, well, now that you mention it, you know. <laughs> I said, yeah, 400 is more than enough. It's more than enough. So he says, you guys were generous with me. You didn't have to give me a ride, but you did. And I wanna pay it forward. Keep paying it forward. And he gets out and we've never seen the guy again. Well, little did we know that the next day at the Green Bay Packers game, my wife would lose her grandfather on her mom's side. And in order to get back to St. Louis and to go to Ohio to the funeral and then to get back to St. Louis, guess how much gas money it cost? $400. Generosity begets generosity. A generous heart unlocks generosity in others. And it has continuous and reciprocal impact. Not only does it unlock generosity in others, 
A generous heart plants the seed for a future harvest. A generous heart plants the seed for a future harvest. Look at Luke 6.35. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. What Jesus is saying is this is the tail end of a few thoughts that he's developing here. And he's saying this, like, everybody loves people who, who like them. Like, that's normal. Anybody can do that. That's like base floor. But what about loving people that you consider your enemies? What about being kind to people that haven't been kind to you? What about being generous with your words or your compliment or your encouragement or the hope that you see in someone, even though they've never done that for you? He's saying anyone can love people who look like them. Loving your enemies, that's a, second, that's a whole nother level. That's transcendent. That means that God must be among you. I want you to love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting anything in return. No strings attached. It's no I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's I give and that's it. I give in order to give. And a generous heart plants the seed for a future harvest. What is he talking about when he says your reward will be great? He's not saying what we give so we can get. He's talking about it in the context of loving someone who's not like you. Maybe they're far from God. So when you're generous to them, you're leveraging those resources, whatever it may be, in all hopes that maybe they get closer to God. Maybe they stop making choices that are self-destructive and harmful. They get out of addiction. Maybe they start to realize they don't want to live their life for themselves anymore. And they start to live a bigger life, a more joy-filled life, a life filled with service. And it's a generous heart that plants the seed for a future harvest. Years ago, we were uh, living in a small condo. I was uh, in seminary working three-quarter time, and uh, we were living in this uh, place in St. Louis, and we had some uh, two Mormons come by. And these two young Mormons, these gentlemen, Latter-day Saints, they, uh, they were going through their mission. So if you know anything about the Mormon church, uh, these young men go through their two-year mission so that they can become an elder in the Mormon church. And they go and they knock on your door and they try to evangelize. And so they came to our door one fall, I guess I should set up the story like this. I should also tell you that in the fall, we have a consistent uh, tradition. Uh, we go pick apples, and we take this abundance of apples, and we bring it back, and my wife makes for the family, and primarily for me, a wonderful caramel apple pie. Homemade crust, apples, caramel, sugar, brown sugar, like you got these crumbs on top, and then she takes these swirls and puts them on top, and then she takes Heath Bar, and she pounds the Heath Bar up, and she sprinkles it on top, and then she puts that in the oven, so chocolate, toffee, caramel apple pie. Are you with me? <laughs> yeah. Like, like Prashant said, we're, we're experiencing the food, right? And so she made this pie, and these two Mormons come up to our door, and I was at work, so I was unable to intervene. And she begins to talk with them, and they begin to talk with her, and if the man of the house is home, they can't go inside, so they're just standing on the porch, and she says to them, oh, would you guys like some slices of apple pie? I found out about this later. We had another serious talk. She gave them very generous helpings of this homemade apple pie, my apple pie, and that started up a relationship and they wear white shirts and they come to your door and talk. And our, friend, our kids were little at the time, so they just nicknamed them the white talkers. 
So they would always say, are the white talkers coming by today? And I'm like, I don't know. So they began to come to our house. We began to build a friendship with them. If I wasn't home, they'd have to stand outside. Sometimes it was cold, so my wife would give them hot chocolate. She'd give them other homemade things, being generous. And they would, they would build this friendship, and I would get home, and they'd come back, and we would talk, and actually went to lunch with these guys and took them out. Well, if you know how it works, they, they're not in control of when they have to go somewhere. So they were about to have to leave our area, and we get this letter from one of the white talkers. His name's Spencer. We get this letter from Spencer, and he says this. He says, you guys don't know this, but this has been one of the hardest seasons that I've ever gone through. I've felt so alone, and I've felt so depressed. But when I have come to your house, I have felt loved, and I have felt light, and it's been one of the bright spots in this dark season for me. And we took that letter and we said, thank you, Spencer. We do care about you guys. We wanna to continue to stay in touch with you guys. I said, look, Spencer, you guys are leaving. We don't know where you'll go, but you'll go back home. I said, in a few years, you're gonna get married. And when you do get married, invite us to that wedding. We'd love to be a part of it. Sure enough, two to three years go by and we get this invitation in the mail. And then he calls us and he says this. He says, hey, I wanna invite you to the wedding. You can't come inside of the church where it's taking place because you're not Mormon. And I said, yeah, I understand, that's totally fine. He said, but after that, there is a reception in a backyard. Would you pray for us at our reception? I said, I'd be honored to. To this day, one of the greatest honors of mine to journey with them. We actually still keep in touch with Spencer. We just ran into him a few weeks ago in the airport. These generous hearts, they plant seed for a future harvest. We don't know what the future holds, but if we hold out generosity to others, we may just see God do work in their life 10, 20, 30, 40 years. To me, that's the heartbeat of the Christian faith is we journey with people who aren't like us all the while holding out hope for their redemption till death do us part. A generous heart plants seeds for the future. Lastly, a generous heart is a never-ending stream of mercy. It's a never-ending stream of mercy. He says this, then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because... He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Like, where do we get the concept of having a generous heart? Where do we get the concept of having a, a mercy-filled heart, one that gives, one that is free from condemnation and forgiveness? We get it because that's how Jesus revealed the Father. He says this, he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. That means people who don't give two thoughts about God during the day, they're not concerned about him, they don't pray, they're not thinking about him, they're not like, oh, how can I live my life better for God or something like that. That means that God thinks about them and that God shines kindness on them. He gives them the sun, he gives them water, he gives them cold air in the summer and warm air in the winter, he gives them food, he gives them family, he gives them freedom, he gives them what we would call common grace and he doesn't begrudge it. He's not angry about it. He gives it freely. Some people say he's wasteful. That's what prodigal means. You know that. That's what the, the prodigal son, it means wasteful. People call God a prodigal God. He just lavishes mercy all over the place. He says, that's what I want my people to be like. And the church has not been perfect throughout history but arguably we have been 
a mercy-filled people with a mercy mindset and an abundance mindset. This is what set the early church apart from other religions that were rising up at the time. They went through several epidemics, several plagues in the Roman Empire, and people were literally taking their family members who had contracted an illness and who were very contagious. They would take them and they would place them outside for someone to come and pick them up because they knew they were gonna die, but they didn't leave them inside because they didn't want to get contagious themselves and therefore they would die. And guess who ran in to take care of them to comfort the sick and the dying at their own risk? The church did. Christians did. They took care of people. They took care of the sick and the hurting. In fact, so much so during both epidemics in the Roman Empire that in the fourth century, Emperor Julian said this, we've got to revive paganism. It is dying and we got to revive it. We have got to be more generous because guess what? We are being uh, outshone in generosity by these dirty Galileans. These Christians are not only taking care of their own, but they're taking care of ours, and it's embarrassing. Well, paganism didn't get revived because the mercy and the generosity of the early church continued to thrive. They had hearts of mercy. They knew it could never end. They not only gave monetarily, but they gave their very lives in in Rome, and during the early church, the pater familia, the father, the head of the household, he was over everything. The buck stopped with him. If they had children, if they had a boy, they would, they would want to keep this boy because the boy could take over the business. The boy could help run the estate. The boy could go into the military. If they had a girl and they did not want to keep the baby girl, they could take the baby girl at the word of the pater familia, and they would take that baby girl and place her on the trash heap to die of exposure. Guess who ran to the trash heaps to grab these baby girls at own cost, their own cost to themselves and they took them in and they adopted them and raised them as their own. Christians, they were generous at great cost to themselves. They sacrificed because they thought this is what God does. This is what God looks like. Hospitals in the fourth century, they exist in large part because of the generosity of the church. Universities and formal institutions dedicated to higher learning in the 11th and 12th centuries, in large part due to the Catholic Church and the Jesuits. The generosity of the church has continued to bear flourishing in the world because they had this mindset. We can't outgive God. He's a never-ending stream of mercy he never runs dry with his mercy. So we're not worried about scarcity. All we see is abundance. And we can give knowing that God is gonna continue to provide. It's not a scarcity mindset, it's an abundance mindset. When you walk in these doors on uh, both rooms, the traditional room sanctuary and this one, both sides, we have mints for people to grab. There's some peppermints that you can grab and that's free generosity. It's a generous thing to you. Now, you know, it, it can come in handy. Let's just say that uh, you're gonna take your dating relationship to the next level. It's like date number three. You're like, hey, we're gonna go to church. We're gonna step this thing up. We've got mints for you. We got your back. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're for you. But there's these bowls of mints. And a few weeks ago, we were in our son's room, and he's got this big bookcase, and he's got all of his collectibles and cars and other things on there. And all of a sudden, I see this big white bowl, and it's filled with peppermints. And there's a little note on the side that says, take one, please. 
And I was so touched. I was like, oh my gosh, like he's a 12-year-old boy. Like you take your wins wherever they come from, right? Like, oh, he's a middle school boy. Oh, he's, he's, look, he's generous. He's probably not going to jail. Yay, woohoo, you take your victories. You know what I'm saying? And so we saw this and I was like, wow, that's amazing. I love that little guy. He's being hospitable, showing kind. Look at that. Take a mint. He wants you to take one. Until we realized that we don't buy peppermints. And I asked my wife, like, hey, I saw the bowl. That's amazing. Did, did you buy peppermints? She's like, no. She said, did you? I said, no, we don't buy peppermints. Well, where did these peppermints come from? I don't know. There's this big question mark of like, where's this broken the peppermints? And even when people took some, it just magically reappeared. Until one day, he came home from church with a pocket full of peppermints. And the mystery was solved. He was taking the peppermints. Our, our, you know, we, do, we need to increase our peppermint budget because in the last few weeks, whew, his heart was in the right place. But I actually tell that because whether he was cognizant of it or not, that's how it works. He didn't know where they came from. He didn't know who goes to the store, what money they spend. All he knew was every Sunday there was a big old bowl of peppermints over there and I can use those and I can fill my bowl of peppermints so other people can take them. Guess what? Never in the extreme of mercy. God has a never ending always filled up bowl of mercy that we can just take from and we can give and we don't worry about feeling empty because guess what? It's gonna be filled next week. It's always there and we take it and we share because his mercies never run dry. It's an abundant mindset. It's a mercy mindset. It's a generous heart. It reflects the Father's heart. It's a never-ending stream of mercy. It gives, no strings attached. The heart gives, hoping that someone, maybe even 30, 40 years down the road, they might come a little bit closer to God and they consider it worth it. Oh, it was all worth it then. It's all been worth it. A generous heart sets others free from bitterness and unforgiveness judgment and condemnation. You say, well, how do, I, how do I get that? I'm not exactly sure. I would say this. First, pray for a generous heart. Just tell God, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a very generous heart. I'm kind of judgmental. I can be condemning. Help me. Give me a generous heart. And then secondly, you act as if those prayers have been answered. Here's the secret, and I hate using that word, but I'm using it, here's the secret. If we wait around to feel, to forgive somebody until we feel like forgiving them, it won't happen. If we wait around to give someone the encouragement and the hope that they need until we feel like it, most likely it's not gonna happen. Here's the trick. God doesn't give us power until we take the step. God supplies the strength once the step is taken. That's when we receive, not before that. So we step out as if he already, has already answered those prayers and then he empowers us as we give. And then we watch over our heart ruthlessly and relentlessly. We look up for any roots of bitterness and any weeds of judgment and we pick those out quickly and we make choices not to go there. Watch for any enemies coming into the garden of heart and we keep them out. 
and say, God, keep my heart open. Let it flow with your forgiving love. Let it flow with your generosity. Let it flow with your mercy. And then our hearts start to communicate God's heart. Then other people are interacting with the very heart of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're a giving God. That you don't give in order to coerce or manipulate or get something back from us, but you give freely and you delight in it. May we be those kind of people, the kind of people that have generous hearts. God, you paid twice. You paid twice. When we sin against you and injure you and wound you, you pay. And then you sent your son and you paid again so that we could be forgiven because we could never pay back that debt. We thank you for that heart. May we know it more truly, more intimately, more experientially. Set us free. Our prayer simple. God, change our hearts. May they look more like yours. In Christ's name, amen.